Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and this week I'm thrilled to bring you my conversation with David Cohen, co-founder and chairman of Techstars, which along with YC has paved the path for early stage capital formation through accelerator models. Since its founding in 2006, Techstars has had nearly 3,000 companies graduate through its programs, and those companies have raised nearly 17 billion in investor capital. David and I had a great conversation where we touched on everything from the early days of Techstars, characteristics David has seen of successful founders, running massive fund portfolios of 500 to 1,000 companies, and his overall view on VC. Now let's get into the episode to hear all of this and more. If you're investing in private companies, then you need to know about Sidecar, the latest player in venture tech. Sidecar is on a mission to enable anybody to be a capital allocator by creating tools built specifically for today's venture investor. Their powerful software removes the headache of organizing private investments so that you can focus on making deals, not spreadsheets. Whether you're syndicating your first or 50th deal, Sidecar X is your silent operating partner handling all back office functions in a single place. Sidecar always has your back so that you never have to worry about chasing subdocs, lost wires, or late K1s. In the spring of 2021, as private market activity continued, we launched Allocate, and Sidecar was an instrumental part of our success. Their products supported our fundraise in a way that delighted my investors and kept me apprised in real time throughout the process. Their platform allowed Allocate to close our seed round efficiently and effectively so we could get back to our mission of increasing access to top private alternatives. Visit Sidecar.io to learn more and join the waitlist for their limited beta. Today's episode is sponsored by Brex. Brex offers smart financial solutions to help startups scale, including a high-limit corporate credit card and a no-fee business account. Brex understands what founders need and has innovated on traditional financial systems to help you manage your finances more easily so you can focus on building, not banking. You can rely on Brex for everything you need to scale fast with live support at the ready, a great mobile app, and zero paperwork. Open a corporate card and business account and make your first deposit in minutes at brex.com forward slash venture. Even better, you'll earn uncapped points on every purchase from day one, redeemable for your first choice of rewards, including crypto. Get started at brex.com forward slash venture. Hey, David. It's so great to see you. And thanks again for being on the show. Huge fan of it. Thanks for having me on, Samir. So I always love going down memory lane. And, and it's hard to believe it's been, what, almost 16 years since Techstars got started. I think it was 2006, actually. Why don't we go into sort of the origin story? Before Techstars, you had been a multiple-time entrepreneur. What was the catalyst of what led to you starting Techstars? What did you want to see? Yeah, I, I had several companies that I had built and a couple that worked and one that didn't. And I was doing some angel investing and I thought it sucked. I thought it was like a great way to turn a medium-sized fortune into a small one. And that's not really what I wanted to do, but I love the idea of angel investing. So it's just like general dissatisfaction with how that worked. You know, meet somebody in a coffee shop, you know, give them 50K, never talk to them until they needed more money. That that didn't feel right. If It's like there has to be a better way. Uh, and so I came up with this this notion of mentorship-oriented program before the word accelerator existed. My co-founder, Brad Feld, eventually coined that word. 
but it was a this new idea of just surrounding the entrepreneurs with more help, right, rather than just the money, and and really helping them get off the ground and build connections and build networks. So it was it was motivated by that a better way to do early stage investing, but also you know I, I was here in, in Boulder in Colorado where I'm based, and we wanted to make the startup community better, bring more interesting deals to town, you know, not get on so many planes to try to make angel investments and. Uh, in, in doing that, we kind of discovered a new model based on those two motivations. So, so I remember reading about this where you had reached out to Brad, and I think it took four months to get on his calendar, and ultimately you meet him, and you have this quick fifteen-minute meeting where, during the course of that conversation, you slip him a folded piece of paper describing the vision of TechStars. Tell us what was on that piece of paper. Uh, it was David Brown and I were each going to invest a certain amount of money. We were going to recruit people to come to Boulder for a few months, give them a tiny amount of money. I think it was 6000 bucks or maybe $12,000 uh, and try to attract them to the network of people that wanted to help them get started. And we thought it'd be, you know, probably a local phenomenon, but we, we got 302 applications the first time we ever set out. So the idea resonated People came from all over, but it, it was really just a simple set of bullet points. And there was an ask at the bottom, right? Be a sponsor or investor alongside of us. We're putting our own money in and any amount. You know, that that 15-minute meeting um, ended about five minutes early with Brad saying, yeah, I'm in as long as you're not a crook or a flake. Uh, I don't know you very well, so let's work together. And I think he now knows I'm not a crook, but I'm not sure he really knows about the flake part. So he's still figuring that out 15 years later. So think back on when you started, entrepreneurship was very much the black box. There weren't a lot of accelerators. In fact, I can't recollect whether YC was around at the time, maybe it, just, it had just started. But can you touch on both how that first cohort was constructed and then how you actually capitalized the program in the early days? Yeah. So actually, Y Combinator was around. It was just in Boston. Um, and it was about, I think it was a, a year old or so when we started. Maybe it had done one class in Boston. And that was one of the inspirations was, and I actually reached out to, to Paul Graham and said, hey, you know, would you be interested in doing this together? We're going to do something similar here. And, you know, I think that, that at that time, uh, yeah, it was just the four of us. It was Jared Polis, who's now our governor, uh, who's an exceptional entrepreneur in his own right. Myself, David Brown, who both worked in the business, um, you know, for for quite a while actually over time, and then uh, Brad Feld. So, look, the the thing about the model that was so cool is it was cheap. I think the the first year's budget was two hundred forty thousand dollars, and I think we had a one x on that capital within twelve months in terms of liquidity. So we had some companies bought right away for ten fifteen million. It's like, oh, you know, we should do this again. And so, you know, yeah, it was just personal money. And we, we did that for the first two, three years. And then people came and said, you know, you should take some money from us, not only to make these initial investments, but to follow on in the companies that are, you know, being funded after the program, uh, because we were angel investing in them after the program as well. And so that led to the first, you know, sort of small fund. When you raise that fund, and, and we'll get into the LP composition in a second, the traditional and conventional way of thinking about building portfolios has always been smaller portfolios, high ownership, concentration. And you were coming at it from a very different angle, which is, you know, smaller checks in a larger universe of companies. How are those LP conversations in the beginning? 
And what were some of the inflection points on getting from the point of taking money from individuals and families to institutions? Yeah, you know, it's funny. When we raised that first fund, it was just two years in, you know, it was personal money. And then two years in, we raised a $5 million fund, um, which used to be more money than $5 million, it sounds like. You know, and the, the opportunity there was investing in companies coming out of the accelerator, but also the mentors. You know, there was a mentor named Jeff Lawson that was starting a company that year. And, you know, we put 50K into Twilio out of that fund. And we ended up with five unicorns in that fund. But the the LPs, you know, were high net worth individuals. And it was, you know, friend of Brad, friend of David, right? And there were no questions about portfolio concentration or conventional wisdom from those high net worth investors. They just believed that we were you know, going to be good at helping companies be successful and, and sourcing interesting companies through the network. So we didn't really have any of those conversations. Of course, that fund would turn out to be a 35x fund, right, on the $5 million. So there was data that showed, oh, the model could work. And then when we raised um, the second fund, it was also a high net worth fund. It was a 25, I think it's $25 million fund. So it really wasn't until the platform started to scale, we were, you know, growing to new cities uh, maybe we were funding, you know, 50 or 70 companies a year at that point where we did our first institutional fund. And that's really where we started to get those kind of questions. I think that was a $150 million fund. And, you know, it was, well, shouldn't you concentrate this capital into the winners, find the 20 best companies across the hundreds that you'll fund in the four-year window of the fund and put $5 million into those? And the answer was, no, we shouldn't do that. And that met a lot of friction, right? The, uh, the investors said, well, that's, you know, I literally had somebody say, you know, David, the conventional wisdom in venture capital is that you have to be highly concentrated in your portfolio, sit on the boards, uh, and you're saying you're not going to do those things. And I said, yeah, I don't, I don't like to make money by conventional wisdom. I don't think that maps to venture capital all that well. And so what we did is we expanded the accelerator footprint and invested in more companies. We did follow on, but we, we, we didn't have a strategy that was, you know, try to win the deal, elbow out the other investors. We wanted the other investors to come in. We wanted to be highly diversified in the portfolio. And I think over time, we started to discover that conventional wisdom was wrong when you're investing at the pre-seed, you know, very early stage. It's why you see so many funds that perform well and then horribly the next fund. Whereas what we get is this high level of consistency because of that diver diversification. And we, we really see venture like the matrix, you know, it's like, Hey, this is just a math problem, right? If you, if you look at the numbers across thousands of startups, we see the patterns, we see how the numbers work to drive strong performance without having to follow that conventional wisdom. So it, it took a lot of, arguing with those LPs and those early funds, they influenced us strongly early on. And we probably put more capital into follow on than, than we do today. And we learned and, and were able to partner with those LPs over time to show them that it's different when you're doing what we do and, you know, are built to do so. It's interesting because portfolio construction has been something that's been widely debated. And you and I talked about this right before the podcast that 90%, maybe near 100% back then, were you know 20 to 30 company portfolios. And the view was, if you're a Series A investor, you should take board seats. And ultimately, going beyond that was deemed spray and pray. 
we've seen that since that, a lot of funds have done really well with large portfolios, whether it be the SV Angels, yourself, 500 Startups, YC, and sort of the list goes on. Do you believe that having a bigger portfolio is something that works in any sort of fund model? Or do you think there are certain type of funds that actually lend themselves better to bigger portfolios versus other funds? Look, I think if what you're after is, you know, if you're if you're an asset manager that wants very high risk and you're after a hundred IRR all the time, you know, you know you're not going to get it every time, these concentrated portfolios, I mean, they evolve for a reason, right? Venture investors got together, they raised money, they had to sit on boards, they couldn't do that many, they had to have a small portfolio, so they had to load up on it. And that's how the industry evolved. Today you see very clear data. Just like you've seen, by the way, in every other type of asset, you think about public markets, go ahead, pick your managers, pick the best managers. You know, they're magical, right? They, they know how to, and I'll just pick my index fund. That's what Warren Buffett said in his famous bet. And, you know, over a 10-year, 20-year period, you win by, you know, look, we're not indexing the market the way that, that you know, Vanguard does that and, and public funds, but it's, it's an analogous idea which is you can lower volatility substantially by being highly diversified and investing at prices that are more logical than what, for example, we see the market doing today. You're going to pay 70 pre for a seed startup that doesn't have anything. That game is a tough game, right? Versus paying two, three million and doing it very early and doing a lot of it. What you see when you look at our funds is this incredible consistency across time, right? It just performs in a zone. And yield, you know, so far we've seen, I think, 20 plus unicorns out of the accelerator programs. We know the math. It's about one in 70 that we fund. They're going to be a unicorn. We, we make money on things that aren't unicorns because we invest early. But this is very counterintuitive until you start to think about what happens in every other asset class is, you know, just being broadly exposed to the asset is going to beat the managers because the manager's fees are so high that it, it, destroys the returns, right? I mean, this this idea that 2 and 20 or even premium carry above 20% is going to pay off across what, what you then have to manage as a bunch of managers because you don't have the breadth of, of you know the portfolio that you want. It turns out there's a different way to think about it. And it's much more mathematical. It's much more about the diversification. And it's 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 really just looking at the game in front of you, much like a casino looks at people who walk in the doors. The only way the casino is going to lose is if nobody walks in that day, right? Or there's not enough people walking in. So the law of large numbers can really affect how you have to think about investing as a strategy. Yeah. And we've, we've seen, of course, these numbers where you look at the number of companies that achieved the unicorn status. And of course, today, there's a lot more unicorns. I think there's a thousand globally right now, but it's still a very rare event, um, very small percentage of companies achieve those type of valuations and then ultimately exits. But one of the things that I've heard you know, from LPs, and this comes up quite a bit, is they identify well with this concept of having more shots at goal, given sort of the scarcity of those super outlier companies. But the counter argument is, do you get enough ownership in these companies where even if you do get the outlier, does it really move the needle from a fund returning standpoint? How do you think about that in context of how you've structured Techstars and the funds that you've run? 
Yeah, again, if you're going to have 20 companies in the portfolio, it's really important to get as much ownership as you can. Our, our funds will have 500 to 1,000 underlying investments. And again, you know, we, we see the numbers dribbling down in the screen, the virtual matrix, right? And it's, okay, one in 70 is going to get to that scale. We should be hitting, you know, seven, eight, 12 of those in a fund, right? And are we going to own a ton of them? No. But over time, right, we, we do have more and more capital available to continue investing in those, in those winners. But, you know, when you're starting out with six, seven, eight percent, it's not about building ownership. It's about holding ownership in your winners and letting the other investors come in that spend the time and sit on the board and need all the fee to do all of that, right? And, and, and some of them are amazing at it, right? That's re really where their sort of zone of genius is. I think our zone, zone of genius is different. It's sourcing companies that are underestimated, have no network, have no opportunity. A lot of them are you know, diverse, uh, underestimated in some way, and they don't have the preparation or the language to even go and pitch a venture capitalist. So we're, we're surfacing those things. We're helping find them all over the world. It's a service to the venture market. And I just think it's a, it's a different mindset. And again, when you, when you have the data across thousands of companies, you start to see that you can deliver high performance by focusing on the valuation you pay up front, the amount of money you put in up front, and the frequency that you do it at, it sort of becomes essentially a numbers game. I don't want to equate it to gambling in a casino, but it's that type of exercise where you can begin to predict what's going to happen. At the same time, there's two dimensions that I'd like to dive into a little bit deeper. And you mentioned sourcing as something that you have actively done and in terms of getting enough of those companies of which you know a small proportion of them will be these outlier companies. And I, and I think about your business in two ways. One is, can you get enough of those quality companies? And number two, what is the filtering system to ensure that the people that are accepted in Techstars are the type of companies that really make sense? Can you touch a little bit on first the filtering that you created in the early days to identify which companies make it? And then also from a sourcing standpoint, I think you made a strategic decision fairly early on that this was not just going to be a bolder thing, but you were going to create these chapters, you know, in different geographies to create a bigger sourcing engine. Maybe you can touch on those two things. Yeah. So in the early days, the sourcing engine was me flying around to airports and meeting people in food courts, right? Um, and then, you know, today we have 100 investment professionals on staff um, that live all over the world. They live in market, right? So they're in Berlin, they're in Singapore, they're in LA, they're in Chicago, and they're part of their communities. And so, you know, Startup Weekend is, is a, a brand of tech stars. We have 7,000 volunteers. It's very grassroots, right, that run these things all over the world. There are a thousand that run every year. The winners of those get a look by the sort of geographically oriented investment professionals we have. And, you know, it's a bet on, on people, right? The ideas are going to change, but it's, it's getting to know the people, figuring out what's intrinsically motivating them to change the world and backing them when generally nobody else will. And so that, that's been the strategy all along is, you know, make a bet on somebody that, that we love, that we think could make a difference and, and create a technology in the world. So, you know, I think the sourcing engine has really grown over time uh, through events and through the sort of proliferation of, of boots on the ground all over the world. 
today, uh, it's one to 2% of people that apply are being accepted every year, uh, about 20,000 plus companies applying. So, you know, we're funding 500 or so companies. When we're training one of our managing directors or our team members, right, it's, it's very much about understanding what's motivating those people. So we spend a lot of time in the interview process, you know, is this because you have a spreadsheet that says you're going to get rich or is this because you want to change the world, right? It's, it's the why, uh, if you're a Simon Sinek fan, that we, we spend a lot of our time on. You know, then, then I think there's the ante of, of the skills, um, right, that you know how to create the thing you're trying to create. You've got some you know, unique insight. When we look at it, every single company we look at, I want to say, you know, I can squint my eyes. I can imagine a future where this is a billion-dollar enterprise. Right. I may not totally see how it gets there, but I, I I believe there's a path to that. It could be a crazy path. But if I see something and I say, I think this is a fifty million dollar outcome, it's, it's it's the person not thinking big enough. Right. So that that's one thing we think about. We want we want to focus on the CEO too. We know how important that is. Uh, is this a person we think can meaningfully drive us down that path that's gonna put the company in front of their own, you know, need to be CEO someday when inevitably, as most companies do, you know, they go through CEO changes. So those are some of the things we focus on, but it's, it's really at this stage, it's two people and a dog and an idea, Samir, right? They don't all have a dog. They all have an idea. They're usually a couple of people, maybe three. And you really want to love the people, believe that they've got this intrinsic motivation to change the world and a vision for it and some unique insight around it where you think that could really be big. When I think about Techstars and YC, I think the two of you have probably seen more companies and founders walk through your doors than almost any other firm in the world. And the thing I'm probably most curious about is when you evaluate founders, given the amount of pattern recognition that you've built, whether there are non-obvious characteristics that you've seen of the most successful founders that innately just provide a better probability of success. I don't know if they're not obvious, but I find that, I mean, when I think back about the companies that really did something amazing and changed the world, they just, like, they get out of bed with this obsession about the problem and the thing they're building that, that is next level, right? I mean, I, I always talk about Isaac Saldana of SendGrid, right? It's the first um, public company out of any accelerator, came through our Boulder program. Uh, later got bought by Twilio and and he and his team, I mean, they just lived and breathed. They were passionate about email. How the heck can you be passionate about email? Somehow they were, and they would talk about SMTP over dinner, right? And, you know, talk about all these protocols all the time. People would call their support line who weren't customers and they would spend hours with them. And, and all the investors were like, what are you doing? Right. And they said, well, we just love talking to people about this. And some of them are going to buy the product. You know, it's 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 hard to fake this real obsession. It's easy to say I'm passionate, but does this person waking up wanting to change the world in a way that ultimately leads them? I think Sengrid was sending two percent of all the world's email at some point through their API. It's a lot of data, a lot of information, a lot of good they can do to stop spamming and things like that. And when I think back to the digital oceans and the class passes and you know the pill packs, they all they all were doing it for something that was beyond the money. Right, it was it was personal. Like their dad had a problem with with a, a prescription, and they wanted to make sure that never happened to anybody again. And so they created the pill pack. Right, that you just take whatever comes in that pack every night. So it it comes from somewhere deeply personal, and it's it's about the change. 
And I, I, fe- I feel like that ties people together. And of course, there are going to be stories of people who don't, they're only motivated by the money that are successful. But I find that that gives you a real edge because when it gets hard, you're not going to quit, right? You're not going to give up on it. You're fighting through that difficulty. Yeah, I, I like that tie into the passion for a particular problem or a solution that you're creating for somebody tying in with resiliency and being able to navigate those inevitable tough times. And it's really interesting. I, when you think about the parallels, even to your business, I mean, you were an entrepreneur, you started a company, you had a very, I think, clear mission in terms of what you wanted to solve for, which was to reduce some of these black box elements, allow these companies to be capitalized in interesting ways. But one of the questions that always comes up is, yes, there always is challenges in those early days. And there's, there are probably times, I would presume, in the early days of Techstars that there were things that were very tough to execute against toward this mission. Can you maybe walk us through first the first few years? What were some of the big challenges? How did you overcome those, some of those material challenges to keep this going? Because it did coincide with the 08-09 timeframe which of course is when the market fell apart. Yeah. And you know, as, as you know, there's opportunity in those moments, but in, you also feel like, oh my gosh, I started a company right when this is, is turning the wrong way. But then who knew there'd be this you know, amazing run after that? Probably for us, the biggest challenge is what a lot of GPs will face is, especially with a new model that isn't conventional wisdom, is capital formation. You know, we're you know, we're a billion dollars of, of capital under management today, but it took us a long time to get there. The last four or 500 million have been in the last year or two. It sort of takes time to prove a new model and a new strategy, you know, global seed investing at scale, right? 500 startups a year, you know, going to thousands a year. That doesn't sound like what I'm used to investing in. And so I would say capital formation was what kept us up at night a lot in the years sort of three, four, five, six, seven. And, you know, we had to find other ways to to access that capital. And so, you know, we we had corporations approaching us, initially Microsoft. Folks like Nike, right? Barclays Bank. We've worked with 60 or 80 of these corporations now. And they were essentially our LPs, right? They wanted an innovation where they could attract early stage talent around their product or technology ecosystems. Microsoft wanted, you know, interesting startups that were looking at Connect or Azure. And, you know, Amazon wanted them looking around, you know, Alexa and things like that. So we were able to basically find capital partners and build a fund when LPs weren't so sure. And that allowed us to build a track record. So it's sort of scratching and clawing your way to the track record that shows your insight is going to work when maybe the traditional LPs didn't get it yet or it was just too weird for them. You know, today we're much more reliant on LP capital than those corporate partners we work with. We still work with a lot of them, but you know that caused us to sort of have to look over here and and think of another customer besides the entrepreneur for a while. And frankly, that that was a distraction for the company for many years. But it was how we had to form the capital. If only we had someone believing in us with hundreds of millions of dollars a year early on, that would have been nice. Today, they look at the data and they see a 15-year track record. They go, okay, this makes sense. Let's go, right? But it, it takes time to, to do that, especially with a new model. So that was, those were some risky moments, and, and there might have been faster ways. Uh, we sort of did what we had to do, like any, any startup to stay alive. And you know, today, it's, it's sort of paying off, and we're able to scale it with LP money. So, since you mentioned moving 
and crossing that chasm from individual high net worth individuals and families into institutional capital, was it simply a byproduct of track record, i.e. returns? Or were there other things that you felt that really moved the needle with those institutional investors that got them to invest that was outside of just track record? Yeah. I mean, look, the first fund was a massive you know, success. And so the track record was there. But then everybody said, well, can you scale that? You're trying to go to multiple cities. You know, how can you how can your small team invest in 50 companies a year? This is crazy, right? And today we're 10x that. Still, still not crazy. But I think just the professionalization of the organization, right? Leveling up the executive team. Um, you know, not a lot of venture firms are 300 people. <laughs> That's what we are, um, with a hundred job openings, right? It's just it's weird. And I think that that we had to professionalize like how we communicated with our investors. In the early days, just doing a you know annual meeting and sort of winging it versus like really delivering the information on a cadence, professionalizing the reporting, you know, the ability to sell the funds. You know, I'm I'm an entrepreneur. I'm selling this vision, but I wasn't speaking in the early days the financial language that an LP wanted to hear. So we had to learn how to communicate about what we were doing, you know, both with reporting and also just verbally, all the relationship building. And we were terrible at that stuff early on, right? I mean, we just weren't going to enough dinners. We weren't visiting enough people. We were assuming that people would invest again when the fund came up. And that, you know, you always are fundraising as, as a GP. And um, even when you just finish raising the fund, right, it's, it's always the storytelling. So just up-leveling a lot of those skills took some time. Well, what's really unique about your model, and when I hear you talk, it's no different than a portfolio company that is building around a particular problem set with a particular solution, but also facing some issues or facing some of the you know the normal sort of things you have to navigate around, which is capital formation and scale. And your product itself, over time, has been able to scale to the 500 to 1,000 companies that you're doing. Going back to those early days, I always feel like the first few hires set the tone from a value standpoint. And when you look at an organization that's so decentralized, it, of course, requires a certain ethos that goes from chapter to chapter to chapter. Tell us about some of those early people you brought on in terms of their characteristics that you you knew that you need to have and the things that were truly non-negotiable. You know, I think it's really important. We coach companies in this today to to really set your values early and this sort of give before you get, which morphed into give first, um, which is sort of the mantra around Techstars in all of our kitchens around the world, right? Uh, hashtag give first. It's mostly Techstar stuff. We don't own that, but we we were harping on that very early on, and you know, bringing in early hires, you know, Nicole Glaros, uh, Jason Seats, people like that. They they just love entrepreneurs, right? Like I do. They it's a joy to help an entrepreneur be successful. And when you say what the mission is, which is we're building the worldwide network to help entrepreneurs succeed, that was attracting a lot of talent. So we were being pulled. We got pulled to Seattle, right, by Andy Sack and, and Greg Gottesman and others. We got pulled to New York by David Tisch. I was like, you have to come here. And it was because they could really feel that this was all a service to, to help entrepreneurs be successful. And we weren't going to charge them any money. We were going to invest in them. And we were going to be successful when they were going to be successful. And we were going to be common shareholders, right, who got paid only when they got paid. Uh, It just was never in our ethos to be, you know, sort of getting money before entrepreneurs do in any kind of outcome. 
So we've lived that all along. And I think that has helped us attract people that are maybe above our pay grade, so to speak, right? Where you look across the company, 300 people today, about 130 were CEOs before they took this job, right? They were running their own thing. So you have a lot of people in the organization that are there for the mission. Um, and I think that's a great way to build a company and attract talent. And they see us doing it all over the world, giving people opportunity where they wouldn't otherwise have any to make a change in the world. So yeah, that that ethos of give first, help entrepreneurs be successful, right? Giving before you get in the context of that network really attracted great people. And we were really fortunate about that early on. And, you know, even today, when I think about our CEO who who we hired just a year ago, Lael Gave, amazing pull for us, right? She's she's built other companies that have gone public and done amazing things. And she doesn't have to do anything, right? But she wants to do this because of the mission. That's what that's what the company's full of. And I think if you can find a way as a fund manager or an entrepreneur to create that kind of feeling, uh, you, you just have a massive talent advantage in the world. It's amazing what you've been able to build from an ethos. And it really creates this connective tissue that despite the fact that you have this level of decentralization in terms of geography, that the product itself is the same, whether it's Berlin, whether it's Seattle, New York, or, or Boulder. What are some of the things that Techstars does right now to maintain? So you've built the ethos, you have the brand, you have the value, but how do you keep that connective tissue when you have so many people in different locations? It's hard. I mean, it's, you know, as companies cross 100 or 150 people and you don't know everybody anymore and, uh, you know, you have all the problems that it, that, that some of the people listening are going to say, my portfolio companies have those problems. We don't because we're just four partners or whatever. We, we have those problems too. And I think it's just building a culture of communication. Again, I think, I think we've gotten a lot stronger at that in the last few years. But finding ways, you know, whether it's through, you know, chat stuff, Slack or whatever, or it's, you know, kind of just really regular, repeated communication about things and what's important. And then letting people experiment, right? People need to feel ownership. Uh, you can try something different. The logo is always going to be green. You know, the amount of money we invest is always going to be the set deal. But if you want to try 12 companies instead of 10, great. Let's run an experiment. Let's see how that goes. Let's make sure we're delivering as much value Let's measure it and then let's do more of that. So they end up helping each other. They share with each other. And this is, you know, these are all directly owned operations. It's not franchises or something. So we we train them, we bring them to Boulder, we make them experience that ethos, right? We help them help each other. So a lot of their incentives um, that they have in their comp packages are not just their thing. It's about giving first across the network and helping others. So they open up their local networks, they open up their investor networks to each other, and they trust each other. And I think that's, that is hard to do across the world. Um, our all-hands meetings, we run them at all different times. Some of them, for me, are 8 o'clock at night because Singapore, right? Or, you know, wherever in the world, Australia. So you just have to think globally, act globally, and not make it feel like, oh, there's an HQ, and we all have to conform to that. That motivates them, and then you you encourage them to share and help each other. And I do think that ultimately, you know, this is just the normal evolution for any company as you get larger. Is understanding how do you create scale and consistency in in the the approach that you do have. And since we are talking about evolution, the market has evolved significantly. Of course, since you started TechStars, you know, sixteen years ago, but even more so over the last three or four years, where everything appears to go in warp speed. 
how has that impacted your model, if at all? And also, I'd just love to get your general assessment on the venture industry today, because I know you spent a lot of time thinking about these things. For those of you listening that are contemplating running a fund or running a fund, I, th I think one of the most important things you can do is figure out your strategy and stick to it. And this was some really early advice I got from one of my mentors, Brad Fell, that we talked about earlier. You know, Brad said it's it's almost more important that you stick to it than what your strategy is, because you end up building expertise around it and pattern recognition and insight around your strategy. And so, you know, the Techstar strategy is to to find underestimated founders around the world who need a little bit of capital and a lot of mentorship to help them unleash their potential. And, you know, what we see in the market is more money going into startups earlier, a lot of money flowing, you know, venture capital market used to be $30 billion a year when we started. It's, it's over a hundred billion easily now, each and every year there's new players, there's corporates, there's, you know, the soft banks of the world, right. Uh, TPGs, et cetera. Tigers, right? Flowing in, you know, Series A's can be $30 million. Companies coming out of um, accelerator programs can raise money at 70 pre. It's crazy. And what we're going to do is do what we do. And it, it, it you know, it's controversial. We, we are going to keep investing small amount of money in companies that we're finding in different markets around the world and get them ready and get them access to that angel and venture capital market. And we're going to help them succeed by doing that at scale, where no one else is willing to put in that type of energy, that type of legwork all around the world in that way. Um, we could change and we could start throwing more money and start you know, playing the same game. But we believe actually that this sort of increase in capital availability, in a way, is just all going to the same people. It's more money going to the same people. It's less taking a chance on somebody. Right. And we've seen firsthand that taking a chance on somebody can lead to really changing the world when that person had no opportunity before, no access, no connection, no network. Uh, we can bring that to them in a very powerful way, whether that's a company moving from Australia to the US and just wanting that network, or someone who just has never pitched a venture capitalist, doesn't even know how to talk to a venture capitalist. So I, I think it's stick to your strategy. Ignore all the stuff you can't control, which is the run-up in capital. It will change, right? And the market will go back or go under. Like a lot of people in entrepreneurship for the last 15 years have never seen a down market, really, right? Um, I've, I've been doing this as an entrepreneur longer than that, and it's just a matter of time. So, look, I think I think there's a it's a great time. It's summer for startups, a lot of capital. It's a great time for investors, a lot of exits. You know, IPO market, unicorns being born left and right. And, you know, we all reap the benefits of that when it happens, but you've got to build a model that doesn't depend on that at the same time. You brought up the amount of capital. I think last year, venture funds raised $128 billion, highly concentrated with some of the large, large names. And even capital going into venture backed startups in the US was north of $300 billion in, in 2021. Much of that was very concentrated as well. So it's not like everybody, every company is getting it. And you talk about these overlooked entrepreneurs that may not have the same pedigree, the same background as the companies that are getting that, let's call it $30 million, you know, Series A or the C Series C valuation that's, you know, 20 to $40 million. 
Are you finding that those companies that are coming out of tech stars that are these overlooked, maybe entrepreneurs and companies, are getting more traction in fundraising today, given the availability of capital? And what have you seen over the last few years? Oh, for sure. I mean, look, the the round sizes have gone up, the valuations have gone up. It, it goes with the market. You know, I think 30, 40% of our companies get to Series A. So, you know, if, if you're doing 500 a year, right, you're talking about hundreds of companies that are doing market Series A deals, Series B deals. So they're benefiting from that um, in the same way. Hopefully they're benefiting because hopefully they're getting good investors. We coach them that that's more important than valuation. People are going to dig in and help and open their networks and be there for the next round. Post the accelerator, it looks like the rest of the market. And, and that's really the financial engineering. You know, I said it, this looks like the matrix and I can see the math. What we do is we're in before all of that. We're in before it gets crazy like that. And we are providing the support that gets them to the market in the first place. They get help with their pitch. They get introductions to these networks when they're ready, right? And they learn the language and they get the practice runs and all of that. And then it looks like the market. So this is the advantage we have is, and it's for anyone who's building this sort of large portfolio approach. There's a few of us that are trying to do it. The data's come out now where you can see that that it works as long as you're focused on the right things. And what most matters to me is the number of people that we give a shot on this planet. Right? We're here to help entrepreneurs succeed. We're going to use our network to do that. So macro market is going to be what it is. Hey, cryptocurrency could crash. The whole thing could go south. We could all be in a terrible you know, bear market for a long time. Who knows? But we'll just keep doing what we're doing. I think as an investor, that's the mindset is you have to believe in your strategy rather than just, hey, we're going to find some interesting companies and put some money into them. I think what you've described is really focusing on the core competence you have as a firm and and not paying too much attention to these macro factors that ultimately you can't do anything to change. That said, you, you have been through multiple cycles and I've been through a couple of cycles in 99 and then again in 2008. I'd love to just get your assessment if you have a view on where do you think we are right now? Is this 99? Is it 97? Where do you think we are right now? Well, I'm not sure that 99, that whole bubble thing is 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 going to ever get, I mean, we've learned, right? Although it feels like some of us don't remember that in this moment, but I don't know. I mean, I don't have a crystal ball and I try to focus on what I can control and I know I can't control this. I would be surprised if we don't see some kind of turn in the next three to five years in the other direction. And, you know, building real relationships with your LPs as a fund manager, having a model that works in good times and bad is something that we have the luxury of thinking about today. You know, I'm an investor in, I don't know, 35 venture funds. And I talked to all of those new GPs. They're mostly brand new, you know, first time funds. And I said, just, just make sure the model you're using doesn't depend on how easy it is for your companies to raise capital today right? How high of a valuation they're getting, how much money they're able to attract. Think through where your real advantage is as an investor in those companies and how you can really help them. Because there will be a time, could be during the life of this fund that you just raised, that it's not going to feel the same way out there. And it's hard to believe that it's been, what, 13 years since I think Sequoia wrote the RIP Good Times memo to their founders, which feels like a lifetime ago. And you're right, many founders and investors have never been through a down cycle. 
putting aside the fact that you can't control these macro factors, is there something that you are advising your companies on today that might be different than what you advised them two years ago, given sort of that macro capital ecosystem that we just talked about? Well, drink when served. Um, you know, I love to say that. So, you know, I, I was just interviewing a company on my own podcast that was telling me they raised their B round six months after their A, and it was totally inbound. And that's exactly the advice that we're giving people today is don't be influenced by how fast they want you to spend the money, but it's great when they're coming to you and saying, we want to put money and just be yourself as an entrepreneur. You don't have to, you know, go buy all the fancy office furniture. Uh, like we saw in the late '90s, right? But you can uh, drink when served. Take that capital, you know, be yourself as an entrepreneur with it. When the pandemic first hit, I wrote an open letter to startups everywhere in a time of crisis on my blog, and I, I was just like, we were getting inbound from a portfolio of thousands of companies. What do I do now? I was raising around. There's no money because for a moment, angels went away completely, and a lot of funds said, "I don't know if I can do this thing on Zoom." Right, that that was six months of just pause. Corporations weren't buying new products. Every portfolio company calls, and the pattern I was feeling was like tactically, I can tell you a bunch of stuff, but what you need to know is right now the people who get through this are going to be the winners. You're going to be a year, two years ahead of everybody else. You're going to have all the talent on your team because the others are going to quit, and they just needed a little inspiration. So it's the tactical advice of go back to your current investors, get more money from them in that moment, take money while the money is on offer because there's so much capital out there right now. It won't feel like that to every entrepreneur listening, but there are for good companies, there's just way more capital than there's ever been. So build up that balance sheet, uh, get good people on the team, but don't spend like there's no tomorrow, right? At the same time, be reasonable and responsible in, in the company building that you're doing. Well, I love the I love the saying, "Drink when served," but perhaps you know we add to it and say that even though you drink, you don't have to gulp everything down at once. It it, it is about having some level of thought and uh, I think carefulness around how you spend capital and not going into crazy burn mode. Totally. And I got a shout out to Mark Solon for the drink when served uh, phrase, like my, my good friend Mark wrote that on his blog. And I've always loved that phrase. It's a great phrase. But you, you mentioned you'd, you've invested in 35 funds and mainly early stage funds. And I often like to ask people, given sort of the market, we've seen so much capital raised. As an LP, what exactly do you think is some of the key characteristics of a successful venture manager? And where do you think if we have LPs that are listening right now, which we do, where would you advise them to invest capital to generate the best possible return in today's environment, given that there's so many different options? We have this barbell effect that's, that's often talked about, right? All the capital going to you know growth, uh, very large investments, and as early as possible. I think there's something to that. I've done some uh, late stage kind of growth stuff. And that's like less risk. Those people just basically don't take any risk. Right? <laughs> Doing a preferred investment into a company that, you know, worst case, they're going to get their money back. But if you really want the alpha, uh, I think a lot of the money chases the middle. You know, it goes for Series A, Series B. And there's, there's very clear data that smaller funds produce better returns, right, in terms of IRR. It's just, it's just easier to have a win, right? When you have a, a $20 million fund, you know, one company can return 50 or 100 million 
that's a nice multiple. And it's just the dynamics are such that it's harder to do that as the fund gets bigger, right? You you end up with, you know, you're taking the board seats, you have this concentration, you have to do more work per company. Um, you're more careful with your diligence versus really taking a risk. So I look, all the funds I'm in uh, pretty much are micro fund managers. I'd say the biggest one's about 60 million. Um, just, you know, fund in New York, 2048 Ventures, which is a, a, a former um, managing director, Alex Gold at Techstars. The 25 million and under is my sweet spot because they can deploy 50, 100K checks. They're not fighting for it. They're on the ground where they live, helping the entrepreneurs get get going and, and helping them succeed. So, and, and I'm, I'm not going to invest in a fund that doesn't do at least 50 investments, right? I get pitched on funds that do 20. I'm just like, you're crazy, right? Um, you have to actually be lucky, right? Like, if you're a good manager, you should hit a unicorn in 50 companies. Again, that's not the only thing that matters, but that's what tends to drive the outcome. So, you know, if you looked across my portfolio, the 3,000 companies through Techstars, I'm probably five, seven, 8,000 across all the managers I'm in, right? So I'm, I'm playing the market. I'm not playing, you know, try to guess the winner game that so many people play. As you've heard on your show before, and I've heard on your show, it takes 10 years to kill a venture capitalist. <laughs> that's great for venture capitalists. It's not great for the LPs. Yeah, I think that's right. And we did have a guest on the show actually a while ago, Jamie Road, who mentioned that as they construct their fund of funds and look at seed funds to invest in, one of the key attributes they look at is whether the manager has enough shots on goal, taking a very data-driven and quantitative view on venture investing versus the classic 20 to 30 companies. The other perspective, and I, and I want to end on this, is throughout this conversation, it's struck me that Techstars is very mission-driven in creating social good by having more companies, including underrepresented founders, have opportunities to start companies and build wealth across you know, areas that historically have not had the benefit of leveraging the venture industry. But the other thing that I wanted to ask you about is this foundation that you built that relates, in my mind, to the overall Techstar story. But can you tell us a little bit about the foundation that you've created? Yeah, so about six years ago, we created the Techstars Foundation, which is a nonprofit, um, techstars.org. You know, the, the thought was, we're, we're pretty good at finding world-changing ideas that can scale. And, you know, what if we could find some world-changing nonprofits that could scale? And the mission of that foundation was to, and is, to find, you know, support entrepreneurs that are underestimated and underrepresented. And we fund other nonprofits that are out there finding them and helping them be successful in ways that those nonprofits can then scale. So very similar to how we find a company to invest in for-profit, we want to find nonprofits that we can give capital and network, more importantly, to. Um, and so the way that model works is somebody who's going to make a contribution to a company that's impacting diversity in tech, right, and inclusion in tech a nonprofit company, let's say you, Samir, you were going to you know, put 10K into a nonprofit. If you do that through the Techstars Foundation, we take your 10K, we add 20% right away. So it's already powerful for you. And then we advertise that activity across the global network of 20,000 investors, five, 6,000 alumni, six, 8,000 mentors, 7,000 community leaders to try to match that. And we keep matching 20%. 
So we raise money to do that matching and, and awareness uh, of that opportunity. So it's been super powerful. We backed about 20, 25 nonprofits. Some of them have scaled really nicely and are really impacting diversity. Some are accelerators for underrepresented entrepreneurs. Some are you know just training, education, learning. But if, if anybody out there is listening and wants to support a nonprofit, doing it through the Techstars Foundation is a way to sort of amplify, amplify that impact pretty well. It's it's a great initiative and you know, congratulations on, you know, launching that. I think that although we've seen some improvements and some progress as it relates to more capital going into under underrepresented founders, the data itself is still very lagging, particularly when you look at BPOC, Latinx, it's it's very low. And so initiatives like this are great. If someone wants to find out where do they go to find out more about the foundation? So Techstars is techstars.com. The foundation is techstars.org, which is the nonprofit that you know carries the brand. It's a separate organization, but we really try to leverage the Techstars Global Network to help those nonprofits that we work with on the .org side. That's great. Well, well, David, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks again for being on the show, and congrats on all the impact that you've made over the last decade and a half. Thanks. Thanks for doing what you do. I think it's really valuable for people to hear these different perspectives and learn a few things along the way. So it's a, it's a great show. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with David. To learn more about Techstars, the foundation, or David, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlock episode as soon as it's released. 